So glad that you're here with us, um, whether you're a guest with us here in the room or you're a guest with us online. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Michael, and uh, I'm glad to be able to spend some time with you this morning. Woo! We ready? Um, this morning, we're going to take a look at, uh, or we're going to begin a new series. So if it is your first time with us, I welcome you. It's a good time to, to step in and join with us because we're starting something new. This is new for us. We'll conclude our gathering this morning by learning a new to us song um, that's going to go along with our themes. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a great day to get started. Now, who has family? And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. All right, yeah, well, you do have to admit it. Okay, we all have family of one kind or another. Who has family stress? All right, just as many. <laughs> so by family, we, we automatically understand that there is a stress that, involve, that is involved with family. Now, that's a blanket statement. That covers everybody, but I don't have to know your specific situation or the details of what's going on with your family to know that when you put humans together in a household, there's conflict. I don't even get an amen on that. All right, there's a little one. There we go. Okay, all right. We're going we're gonna to get through this. So, if we are stressed by family and we are blessed by God, which is something that we kind of acknowledge as believers, like God's, God's active in the world and he's active in our lives, like how are we blessed by God when we are stressed by family? And, and, and what do we do when our family doesn't look the way like we thought that it would? Or people in our family are doing things that we didn't necessarily think was going to be good for them or was going to be good for us. Or don't they realize that what they do affects other people? Like, it doesn't, I don't have to know the specifics to know that I can just say some statements and we all are on the same page with this, right? Amen. Okay, so the great thing about the Bible, now we as a church believe that the Bible speaks to us and tells us everything we need to know about God for now, which doesn't mean it tells us everything we want to know about God, but it tells us everything we need to know about God and his character, and that God sees us and the kind of lives that we live. Here's a thing that maybe I didn't pick up much when I was going through Sunday school growing up, but the Bible does not hide the fact that family life is hard. Like, is that a little bit of a relief? <laughs> Actually, from the very first pages, the families in the Bible are super jacked up. Uh, Adam and Eve doesn't go well, and we're still dealing with the, with the ramifications of the decisions that they made. Okay, so, all right, their kids have to have done better than them. Cain and Abel, well, actually, not so much. Um... Yeah, I, I can go through a whole list of different situations. And there are times in the scripture where the Bible describes a family as it is, maybe not necessarily as it should be. And so it, it gives us a question. There are times where if we want to live our lives according to the Bible, we say, okay, what is a biblical picture of family? Well, the biblical picture of family is actually very realistic. It just says how families are. There's tons of descriptions of different families throughout generations, and it doesn't necessarily say that what they did was right or wrong. It's just this is what they did, and this is what God did in through that. 
And what I would like for us to do in this series is actually zoom in on a, on a picture of history where God works in families in very specific ways, but the ramifications of what happens in the family carries weight throughout a whole country, a whole nation, and ultimately throughout the whole of the earth, throughout all of human history. Right? So we tend to think that, like, okay, yeah, everybody's got family issues, and i got to deal with mine, and you got to deal with yours, and there's really no really overlap or anything like that. But what I want to do is zero in on a, on a time in history where what happened in a family mattered for all of human history. And so maybe you don't feel like your family issues like have that kind of weight attached to them, but maybe if we look at this picture and then we see what it was that God was doing, and we see how people responded to what God was doing, and then what God did in response to that, then maybe we'll have some kind of idea of what I need to do in my family today. All right, do, can you go with me on that? Are we up for this adventure? It's going to take us a couple weeks, but we're going to get through it. All right? Cool. Well, as we, and we're calling this Silver Linings. And this is probably one of those titles that's too clever. Um, I, I tend to come up with things that have too many layers of meaning. Um, and so our family and all the stress that we experience gives us gray hair. We have silver linings in our hair. Some of us more than others, but it, but it happens. And some of us cover it up and some of us don't, but there is gray there. I ain't looking at you, Robbie. It's all right. So we have these silver linings because of family, but because of the stress and because of the situations that God walks with us through in our families, he gives us his grace more and more and more. And there's silver linings to the trials that we face together in families. So... Let's take this adventure together, and as we begin, I'd just like to invite you to pray with me. Um, we're going to pray together the disciples' prayer. It's a model of prayer that Jesus left for us, not that it's magical words and that these magical words will give you all the blessings in your life, but it's a model that Jesus left us so that we can pray with the right attitude and come to the word with a, with a proper attitude before our Creator. So would you pray together with me? Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're going to be turning together to the book of 1 Samuel. This is in um, what we commonly refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, 1 Samuel. And if you're using the Blue Bibles, I will tell you the page number in 30, less than 30 seconds. 1 Samuel is on page 283. 283, if you want to use the Blue Bibles, you can navigate there with your, your fancy apps. We're going to be in chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I want to give you just a little bit of background about this chapter um, as we begin, because I think it matters a lot. Now, we just, several months ago, if, if you've been following along with us, we just did a series that we called Break the Cycle, and it was all about the period of the judges. And the period of the judges was a time in history where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and it went really bad for everybody. So, real brief summary of human history God creates the earth and everything in it. 
God creates man to be like him, to represent him to the world, and man's like, no, 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 I'm going to do the God thing. I can be God better than God can, and rebels against God. So then God starts in, uh, begins to begin and work with families to be able to bring the family of humanity together under Christ. We, spoiler alert, Jesus is the answer, but you already knew I was going to go there. <clears throat> so, Starts with Adam and Eve, begins with a guy named Abram, who didn't have any kids, but he says, You're, you don't have any kids now, but you're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to give you a bunch of kids. And he gives him one son. Okay, and his one son had one son, uh, or had two sons. I'm going to do my math wrong. You guys know I don't do math. It's super great. <clears throat> and from those sons, he picks one son, and that son has... 12 sons, they become a family of 12 different families, and the families turn into tribes, and the tribes go into captivity and become slaves, and when God brings them out, he doesn't bring them out as 12 families, he brings them out as one nation with 12 tribes. We call that the nation of Israel. You're familiar with that. He brings them through the desert, he gives them a constitution, and he says, I'm going to give you a land. It takes a while for them to get the land. They're kind of dumb. They're humans. We would do the same mistakes that they made. But he brings them into the land, and he says, you guys need to worship me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I just need you to worship me. And they're like, yeah, but there are these other gods that uh, they're a lot more fun to worship. And so they don't. And so God gives them over to the things that they want. That is the period of the judges that we just studied in our series, Break the Cycle. First Samuel is at the end of the period of the judges, but we are still in the period of the judges. Let me give you a picture of what this might look like, and maybe you can identify. Everybody does what they think is the right thing. You do you is the motto of the day. Everybody's looking out for number one, and they're all just going crazy. They, they take their picture of what they think God is like, and that's the thing that they do. Everybody worships God in their own unique way, and it's just an absolute nightmare. There is no, there, everything is morally compromised. And there's faithful people in that, in that kind of a culture where everybody's doing that. There are faithful people who want to follow the true God, but they're not quite sure exactly how to do it because everything's so screwed up. That's the picture of the book and the time of the Judges. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody feel like that could be a description of what we're doing today? Yeah, okay. So I just want you to know that this is real life, and these are real people going through a real situation. Before we get into the Bible language and you begin to feel overwhelmed, like, oh, this is Bible stuff, their names are weird. Like, understand these are real people going through real things, and their grief is real. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm going to read to you the first couple of verses, and then we will pause and I'll kind of explain to you a little bit of what's going on. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. That's just a place name. Say uh, Ocala. <clears throat> of the hill country. Well, it's not Ocala. Uh, there's no hills here. Okay. <clears throat> Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, which is like the state, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Okay, so that's the guy. There's one guy. All of that is to say there's one guy. He lived in the hill country. We good? He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. 
Now on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, excuse me, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had chosen to close her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We're going to pause there, because there's some things we're going to bring out here. So, there's a guy in the hill country of Ephraim, and he seems like he's trying to be a faithful servant of Yahweh, of the Lord. He wants, so he goes to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is set up at this time, and he's trying to do the sacrifices and to worship in the way that God told him to worship. He's trying to do the right thing. But we see that his family life doesn't exactly work the way that it's supposed to. And we see right off the bat, he's got two wives. And probably his first wife, her name was Hannah, and she didn't have any children. She was barren. And so that's probably why he had a second wife in order to take his name, uh, or in order to have someone to pass his inheritance to. We actually learn later on that Elkanah was actually a pretty wealthy guy. And so it makes sense for a wealthy guy to want to be able to pass his inheritance on. But at this point in the story, all we know is there's a guy in the hill country. He's got two wives. One doesn't have kids. The other one does. So when they go to worship, he gives everybody something to offer. This is like when I went to church as a real young kid, uh, my dad would give me a little bit of cash to put in the offering plate. Like, not because it cost me anything. Like, I literally got the money and just put it in the plate. Like, it, it, uh, there is no tithe in that. There is no heart of worship in putting something in the plate that you literally just got. <clears throat> and yet, it gave me the habit of like, oh, like, when I come to church, I, I am coming in humility and wanting to... Um, connect with God in a way like so it was training that so as Elkanah went to worship he would give some to all his his wife who had kids and all of her kids they all had something to bring and to Hannah he would give twice as much because she didn't have kids but Hannah was still upset she was still distraught and she still like wept openly and wouldn't eat and this is like the super spiritual discerning husband why are you crying woman you got me don't you like, anybody want to break this guy's nose already? Yeah. Like, she, she's barren. She doesn't have any kids. There's something that she feels like in her is broken, and she's, she's hurt by that, and she's sobbing. And he's like, but honey, you got me. Why are you upset? I got everything you could possibly need. I'm better than ten sons to you, girl. So he's, uh, Elkanah's not my favorite dude. He's a little bit insensitive to what's going on. But here again, biblical pictures of family are realistic. But does that mean that there's no real instruction? Like, yeah, there actually is instruction. Every time that we see polygamy in the Bible, we see also increased conflict and things not working out well. Like, this, this, thing, this thing that is common in the Hebrew scriptures, it doesn't ever really work good. Every time it's introduced, things go even worse than they normally would. So, yes, it's a picture of a biblical family that isn't the biblical ideal, but we also see in the story that it doesn't work well. There's conflict between the two wives. So we have in this story polygamy. And we're like, oh, well, we don't do that today. We don't do that at all. There's never any situations where one wife has to uh, have some kind of conflict with the new girlfriend or the new wife. Like, oh, oh, that actually, 
I, I do recognize that. We, we may not do polygamy, but, but one of the results of the prevalence of divorce and, and remarriage is that these families are blended. These things are, 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 are still happening today. The feelings that we see in the biblical text are present in our world today. I just want you to see that the scripture is not dead and that the grief and the things that they were facing is still a human issue today. Hannah was grieving. She was upset. And the thing that she's dealing with is is barrenness. I can't have a child. And and, and there's an attitude in our culture today which is like, well, great. Like, she can live the good life. She doesn't have to spend all her money on kids. She doesn't have to worry about whether she's going to send them to school. Like, she should be real happy about that, right? But uh, she saw things a little bit different. And I would, be, I would be tempted to like just kind of write off like this. That's not a problem that we deal with. But there's a huge industry in infertility clinics. Like this is a problem that women face today. She says, I, I can't have a kid. I want a kid of my own. And, 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 and there's this conflict between me and my husband's other wife because she can have a bunch of kids and I don't have any. And I'm sad. And he's kind of a jerk. If your family situation is less than ideal, that does not mean that you're excluded from God's grace. Like, the thing that we're going to see as we work through this this morning, you're not excluded from God's grace. God is still working in us. But I'd like to see, I'd like for you to see the rest of the situation, because it actually gets worse for Hannah. Look look with me in in verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli, the priest, the high priest, like the, the, the top guy in the church, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord bitterly, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So she's praying, and she's praying with the priest there. As she continued praying in verse 12, before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So this woman, who's in severe grief, Big turmoil is pouring her heart out to God, asking God to please intervene in this situation. She goes to church. She's doing the right thing. And the pastor thinks she's drunk. Like, insult to injury. Eli the high priest is like, ah, that woman is drunk. Why is this drunk girl coming to church? But we see here a really, really excellent picture of what to do with our grief. I've come to learn in the last couple of weeks that there is a difference between grief and mourning. So grief is the feelings that you have when something bad happens, when you lose a loved one or you are grieving. Like grief is those feelings. Mourning, the process of mourning, M-O-U-R, not not the sun's coming up and I got to get out of bed. But the process of mourning is what you do with those feelings of grief. And what Hannah does with those feelings of grief is she takes it to God. 
How do we process our sorrow? How do we process our sorrow? Like when we have grief, how do we process it? How do we mourn our grief? I was taught to bottle it up and to never deal with it. <clears throat> the bottle has an expiration date. Um, the other model that I had in my life was to just share it with everyone. It does like walking down the street, like, hey, can I tell you about the sad things that are going on in my life? I need to talk to this. And then you just tell everybody. They just vomit and bleed all over everybody emotionally. And that's also not a great way to make friends and influence people. But here we see with Hannah that she mourns her grief with God. She says, I don't know where else to turn, and I'm coming to you. Yahweh. Well, you, you, you see what's going on. I'm not hidden from you. You understand what's happening. I'm bringing it to you. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, like, I don't know whether you're going to answer my prayer or not, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort through this with, with you. I'm going to sort through it with you and your people. She does it in a worship context. I think that that's the model of how we ought to be doing grief. But, but we've already seen that when you do that, you open yourself up. When you open yourself up to people, even the people of God, there's a chance that you're going to be hurt even more. She comes to church to grieve and to pray and to look for counsel, and the person that's there in spiritual authority disregards her and considers her a drunk, and she's hurt even further. It happens. I'm sorry, but it happens. And our big idea for this morning as we move forward is that God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs. Right here, we don't see it. Right here, we just see the hurt. Right here, we just see the jerk husband. Right here, we just see the insensitive pastor. But as we move through the rest of this chapter this morning, we'll see that God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs. Continue reading with me. I'll pick up in 13 again. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad they, the family, rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord yearly a sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may be appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. We'll pause there. So, there is a happy ending here. And I really want to get there 
but I also don't want to overlook some of the pain that it took for us to get to that point. Because there is a rebuke here for the community of faith. And there is a rebuke here for people in spiritual leadership. In the time of the judges, the high priest lacks the spiritual discernment to see that a woman is praying in grief and not drunkenness. And there's, there's a sense in which we can become so used to the way things are supposed to do, the decorum of the hour. We're pretty informal here. Like, I wear a collared shirt, um, but I don't care if you wear shorts or sandals. Like, I don't, like we're, we're informal here, but there is a, a kind of decorum here. And if someone comes in and has a different kind of decorum, it makes us uncomfortable. And here is a house of worship, and Hannah comes in sobbing in anguish. And the person in spiritual leadership says, why are you drunk? Stop drinking. Like, you don't belong, you shouldn't be drinking here. This isn't the place for that. And he misses what God is doing. And that's a rebuke for us. May I not be so quick to assume I know what's going on in the people's hearts that walk into this building or the people that I meet on the street. May we as a community of faith be open to sitting with somebody in their grief to hearing their problems and being patient with them as they work them out. Hannah's doing the right thing as the spiritual community that missed it. Eli ends up saying kind of the right thing. He says, well, may God answer your prayer. But it kind of seems like he just wanted to get her out, right? Get out of here, lady. You're kind of creeping me out. It just leads me to ask, are we eager to join with our neighbor's grief? Like, not will we put it up with it. Not if, 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 if they lock us in a room and start crying, like, okay, I'll, I'll sit with you in this. But are we eager to join with our neighbors in their grief? If we see that somebody is hurting, will we pause whatever things we have to do that day to sit and listen? Or will we say, suck it up, buttercup. I got things to do today. I don't have time for your tears. Which usually is my default. There's a thing that uh, somebody taught me to say, and I realized as I began to say it, that's not actually helpful. When, when, when I, this person taught me to say, I want to encourage you. When you see something going on and somebody says, I want to encourage you. Well, that really is just actually more discouraging. <laughs> I want to encourage you, but I don't know how to do it, and I'm not going to sit here and take up the time. Like, if I wish it were just as easy as say, I want to encourage you, and you would suddenly feel encouraged. Like, oh, great, you want to encourage me. I'm so glad. Yay, I'm encouraged. Like, it doesn't work like that. This means that we have to have the humility to follow God in our every day. This was just another day at the office for Eli. He's, he's used to people coming in and out. But, but if we're going to follow the Holy Spirit in our every day, then we will be eager to sit and to join with our neighbors in their mourning, in their grief. And it's not sinful to mourn over the brokenness of creation. Like, I've already given you the spoiler alert that I think Jesus is the answer and that I want to point people to Jesus. I want you and your sorrow to be pointed to Jesus. But... We can't just write off like everything hurts. Like, it's not sinful to weep over things that are broken in creation. We see that Jesus does this. 
He knows that he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he stops what he's doing and he cries with his sisters over what's broken in the world. It is not sinful to mourn over the brokenness of our creation. And I'm hesitant to make this point, but I want us to see it here, lest we be the kind of people that think that there are rules that we absolutely must keep. Did you notice Hannah doesn't go to church for a while? That she went and she had this experience and God answered her prayer and Elkanah goes back to worship year after year, but she actually is going gonna, is gonna to be with Samuel for three years while she, before she weans him. Three to five. They, wean, they breastfed for a long time. And so she's not going to worship for a long time. And that's okay. It's interesting, it's interesting here that Elkanah says, okay, do what, do what seems best to you, only let the Lord establish his word. She takes a time away from church to do what she's doing, but I want you to see how she comes back. This isn't just like, oh, I need, I need a couple of days off, I need to take a vacation. Like, she's doing spiritual work in her time away from the spiritual community. Like, it's not wrong to take time away from the spiritual community, but I want us to see in the next verses how her worship outside of church returns to the spiritual community. Because she does come back. She does bring Samuel. And she does walk straight up to Eli and say, hey, remember that drunk lady that you rebuked like five years ago? You remember her? Like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I kind of remember that. I'm the lady, and this is the son I was praying for. This is the answer to the prayer that I was seeking, right? Like, Eli, don't you see that the Lord has been faithful to me, that he has answered my prayers? And she comes with all of the sacrifices and all of the offerings. And this is where we learn that Elkanah was a wealthy man, because he didn't have like a couple of doves that he offered, which was like the poor person's sacrifice. He comes with bulls to sacrifice. And, and all of the expensive offerings that he could possibly give, that's what Hannah brings with Samuel when she offers him to the Lord. And she brings him back to the temple. And in chapter 2, in verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has borne many children is forlorn." The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness." For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priests. So when Hannah comes back, 
She takes a couple of years off, but when she comes back, she can't stop from saying the things that God has been doing in her life. She comes back with a testimony that she boldly declares. God knows. God sees. She's not shy about giving Yahweh credit. She says, all things are in his hands. And she goes on this interesting, like fascinating discourse about reversal of fortunes. People who are wealthy become poor, and people who are hungry become full, and people who are full loan themselves out to get bread. Like there's this huge reversal of the way things are today does not mean they will always be this way perpetually, and it's all in God's hands. If, if you're a, a mother or want to be a mother and you're grieving the loss or the lack of life, like, under, like I wish I could point you to this verse and say, see, just pray to Jesus and he'll give you a baby. But that's not the promise here. The promise here is he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> whole world in his hands. Like that's the promise. And, and I wish I could tell you that he'll give you your wildest dreams and that he'll answer all of your prayers and that if you want a baby, that if you pray to God, he'll give you a baby. But that's not where Hannah lands. Hannah receives the answer to her prayer and her advice, her counsel to the community of faith as she returns is that God is the one who's in control and we can trust him. And I love it when Jesus like pokes his toe in the door the end of verse 10, Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. This is the period of the judges. There is no king in Israel. Samuel is going to be instrumental in setting up an earthly king, but there is no king in Israel. But here we see the toe, big toe of Jesus poking its way in. And I love it when he does that. <laughs> So what's our takeaway? Like, what if we don't get our preferred answers? God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs, but that doesn't mean that everything works out the way that it wanted to. We see an example of how it could work out, of how God could answer prayers, of how Hannah was faithful and God was kind. I think the question is, will we receive God's grace with thankfulness, whatever form that grace takes? His grace may be a positive answer to the thing that you're looking for. May be an answer to your prayer. He may say, yes, you can have a child. And she goes on to have more children. She gives this one up and leaves him in the temple and lets him serve the Lord, and God's going to use him in an awesome way. And she goes on to have more children. But will we receive God's grace with thankfulness? What's fascinating to me, when God wants to begin to tell the story of something really big that's going to happen, he typically zeroes in on a little lady in the backcountry. Moses' story starts with some slaves. The king of the nation of Israel starts with a barren woman in Ephraim. Jesus, the Savior of the world? A 12-year-old girl and her older cousin. God doesn't start the story where we think he ought to start. 
And I feel like that ought to be encouragement to those of us normal people. Right? Will we receive God's grace with thankfulness? This is, this is an attitude of humility, not naivety. We're not just saying, whatever God gives me, I'm a, it's not naivety. But verse 3 of, of chapter 2, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. When we let God have God's place, we can take our own. And if we make space for God in our deepest griefs, God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs. Would you pray together with me? Father, we're grateful for this morning grateful for the time to share together and grateful for the testimony of your word. <clears throat> your word covers a huge, there's just so much history and so many great and awesome and amazing things. And God, you take so much time to talk about small things you do in the lives of normal people. So God, in our eagerness to follow you, would you train us to be faithful and to follow you in the boring stuff, in normal life? Would you give us ears to hear your whisper in quiet moments? Would you give us humble and thankful hearts for the grace that you pour in? Would you lead us in creating more space in our lives for you to do your work? Would you shape our hearts? We want to trust you, and we know that we can. So would you grow us in our faith? Would you lead us onward? In our gray hairs, would you remind us of your great grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen.